I believe Ms. Floss and Ms. Keener are leading you out. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to our friends at home. They never reply back. It's a little joke. That's a little technology humor there for you. All right, never mind. You guys are a rough crowd. Uh, we are today in the book of Micah. So if you want to begin to turn there to Micah, we're picking up today in, in chapter 5 of Micah. We're moving our way through this uh, book of the Minor Prophets. This is the third one now that we've been doing over the last uh, few months or so. And, and I anticipate uh, we'll have one more study, maybe two more studies in the book of Micah, and then begin the new year uh, with a, a new book of study together. But Micah 5 is where we're at. So let me pray for our time together. Father, we thank you for, Lord, uh, a restful time of worship. Lord, uh, maybe not physically, but spiritually, just to be able to sort of take a deep breath, put the, the world aside for a few moments and to consider. And then to be able to do that, Lord, with the voices of others uh, alongside of us and in the background, and I guess for those on, at home, Lord, on, from the TV, and just to know, Lord, that we're rubbing shoulders together with, so to speak, others that want to seek you and know you and be fed by you and uh, honor you and glorify you with our words. Lord, it's good, it's restorative, it's helpful, and we were blessed by it this morning, and and Father, you've been gracious, you've given us your word, Lord, to speak truth into our lives, truth into our circumstances. Lord, your word is truth for this generation and for every generation. And so for us to be able to sit under it and to receive from you is such an incredible gift. And we, uh, we always want to be mindful of that every time we come to your word, every time your word comes to our heart, even as we're out and about our day, and you remind us from the scriptures. Lord, what a gift, and thank you for it. And so bless us once more in our study of the book of Micah, where we're seeking to be faithful to you and your word by taking all scripture, believing it to be helpful for us, and so we ask that once more you would do what you do and you'd minister to us. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in, as I said, Micah chapter 5, and let me just remind you of a couple things as we build to today's message. First off, the book of Micah, seven chapters, there are uh, three sermons and a recorded prayer for us in this particular book. We're in the midst of the second sermon. It was a little bit longer. It's about three chapters in length, and, and so we didn't get the chance to finish it when we were last together, but we're in the midst, midst of that second sermon. Micah was written around the year 740, we'll just approximate, B.C., uh, which is before the Assyrians came in and cap captured the northern kingdom uh, about, by about uh, 20 years or so. And it's about 100 years or so before the Babylonians came in and began to attack the southern kingdom. And Micah is speaking about these coming captivities, these coming invasions by these foreign lands. Micah is preaching about that. He's telling them about that. He's pointing out to them the reason for it, because of their sin. Two sins that we pointed out, a root sin, which was idolatry, and a fruit sin, which was corruption and selfishness and arrogance and all those things that sort of made their way into that society and really defiled what it was that the Lord was trying to create through his people, the Jewish people, 
as I, I've been using this New Testament phrase, the city upon a hill that God wanted to create amongst the Jewish people and how they were just destroying that and ruining that, uh, unfortunately. And so through the Lord, uh, through Micah, the Lord speaks and he talks about these particular coming judgments. As I, as I said, we are in the middle now of this second sermon. And if you weren't with us or you've forgotten, I forget oftentimes, and I'm teaching it, I suspect you probably forgot what we looked at last week. Uh, but if you weren't with us, one of the things that we pointed out is Micah, about halfway through the sermon, he transitions. And so he's been talking all about this coming judgment and the reasons for this coming judgment. In particular, in chapter 3, he's talking about the fact that their leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, their judges, how they were corrupt. They didn't follow the ways of the Lord, but they followed their own ways. Whoever paid them the biggest bribe, then that's how justice was meted out. Whoever gave to their particular cause, well, then that's the message that they heard coming from their preachers and things like that. And that was the beginning of the sermon. Mike is talking about that in the beginning. And then he transitions, and we spent the bulk, really, of our time last time we were together. He transitions from the near prophecy to what we called, do you remember what we called it? Those of you? Class? We called it the far prophecy, right? That sound familiar? You're like, yeah, I remember that now. You just had to remind me. All right, so the near prophecy, and, and I picture it this way. You take a yardstick. You've had a yardstick perhaps when you were in elementary school. That's where yardsticks exist. You know, you have the yardstick that is there, and you, you set it up so it's in front of you and look down, and you can see a series of numbers, and maybe you catch the one and the two because they're closer to you. But there's far numbers, the three, the three-yard mark or whatever it might be. And that's what our friend Micah is doing. He's looking at the near judgment, but then he looks past the near to the far, which is the restoration of a remnant of God's people. And we call that glorious kingdom where Christ himself is going to rule and going to reign. We call that the millennial kingdom because it's a 1,000-year reign of the Messiah on the earth, millennial 1,000. And he's been revealing that to us, and we looked at that, we spent our time with that, and he concluded that there toward the end of, well, toward the end of 4, and at the very beginning of chapter 5, the first verse of chapter 5. Micah talks about the millennial kingdom in about three or four verses. The book of Revelation speaks about the millennial kingdom in two or three chapters. Micah references the tribulation in a portion of a verse. The book of Revelation does that in about 13 chapters. And so I encourage you, dig into those things a little further. You, you get a taste of it in Micah. Dig into them. Read those particular books. Now, you ready? Let's begin our study for today. Middle of the second sermon of Micah, we pick up, and Micah's going to shift once more. So he shifted from the near prophecy to the far prophecy. He shifted from judgment to the millennium. He shifted from this period of judgment to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now he's going to move in chapter 5, verse 2, to a familiar verse to us, particularly this time of year. I wouldn't be surprised if you've already, if you send out your Christmas cards, that this verse is found on some of your cards. If you receive Christmas cards, this verse is likely found. You'll probably see it on your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever me memes that kind of make their way through. You'll see this particular verse, and it's chapter 5, verse 2. You'll notice it says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, in ancient Israel, there were as many as seven different Bethlehems, not just the one, 
uh, but there were as many as seven. And so Micah clarifies, in particular, specifically, the village or the town that he is referring to, and he says, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. What that means is, if I were sort of naming some of the, the towns or the cities of Judah, of Israel, I would say something like Jerusalem. You'd recognize that particular name. Today I might say, you know, we're talking about Tel Aviv, we're talking about Jerusalem, we're talking about these big cities. You wouldn't name a Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's a small little village made up more of sheep than people. And so you wouldn't name it. And so he says, who, is, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Bethlehem Ephrathah, a small, insignificant shepherd village. It was located about five or six uh, miles south, east of Jerusalem. Many of the animals that would be taken and sacrificed in Jerusalem were sort of raised there in Bethlehem. That's kind of interesting to consider that that's where the Messiah would come from, who would become the sacrificial lamb. But it was a tiny little Bethlehem, too little to be named among the clans of Judah. And yet it says, from there would come forth the one who would be the ruler in Israel, the ruler in Israel, the righteous one that would rule and reign with righteousness and that he would do so from Jerusalem. And again, if you weren't with us last week, go back and either read the chapter or go back and listen to the message because that's, that was where Micah transitioned to. You remember the, the focus of Micah's message in chapter, beginning in chapter 3 was the way in which the rulers of Israel had become so corrupt. And he, he contrasts the rulers of Israel and their corruption with the day of the coming ruler, that ruler, the Messiah, who will rule and reign in righteousness. And so here, again, he speaks of this one that is coming to be this ruler of Israel. He contrasts the righteous ruler of Israel, the to come, with the ones that they had before. And he says he's going to come forth from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. What a peculiar place for God's Messiah to come from. You know, if you think about a, a great king, I, I had friends when their kids were, when they were about to give birth, they lived here in Ewing, but they decided to have their kids born up in the Princeton Hospital, so it would say Princeton on their birth certificate, because, you know, Trenton, you know, that kind of thing. And so that was, don't laugh at them, these are my friends and I love them, and that was what they chose to do here. But if you're thinking about the king, this is going to be the ruler of Israel. This is going to be the Messiah. He's going to rule and reign over the entire earth, this particular one. You would think that he would come from a place like Jerusalem. You would think he might come from a place like Rome, which perhaps at that time was sort of the capital of the world. Not some small little back village. And certainly not in some back barn uh, because there was no room for him to stay in any of the homes in that particular village. But there is this foreshadowing of the type of Messiah that Jesus would be in his first coming, that he was born in this tiny little insignificant shepherd village. It's a foreshadowing of the lowly place that God's Messiah would assume in his first coming. And that's a contrast from what he has been talking about with the triumphant return of Jesus Christ at his second coming. But he transitions here to the first coming. God's Messiah would come forth from Bethlehem. But notice he doesn't only 
come forth from Bethlehem. Because look how the verse continues. It says, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. Now, the coming forth from Bethlehem, that speaks of the human origin of the Messiah. This coming forth from of old, as it says there, this coming forth from ancient of days, let me put it in a different word, a little more familiar to us, he shall come forth from eternity. That's certainly saying something different, isn't it? And what this verse is speaking to is this idea that he's going to have a human origin, this Messiah, but the Messiah is also going to have a divine origin, which means that the Messiah is going to be both God and man. Coming forth from of old, speaking of his deity, coming forth from Bethlehem, speaking of his humanity. And in plain uh, straightforward language, well, where's the Messiah going to come from? Where's he going to live? Where's he, where's he going to be born? This sort of very plain, straightforward language, Micah says, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. You remember in the New Testament when the wise men make their way to Jerusalem. They, had, they were the wise men from the east. We call them the Magi. They had seen the star in the skies, and the star you know, was bright and shiny over there, and they began to walk toward this particular star, and they end up in the city of Jerusalem. And they're looking for the Messiah. Somehow, God had revealed to them that this star symbolized the coming of the Messiah. And so they make their way to Jerusalem. And of course, where's God's Messiah going to be? It's going to be in Jerusalem. That's how they're thinking. They come to Jerusalem. They come to the chief priests. They come to the scribes. The scribes were the experts in the law. And they say, you know, where is he who was to be born king of the Jews? And the answer of the scribes, the chief priests, is immediately, oh, that's in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. You're close. You're five miles away from me. You just take that road and it'll bring you right there. I'll read it to you unless you think I'm making this up. Matthew chapter 2, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Because again, the, the wise men went to Herod first. And the, the response of the religious leaders, the experts in the law, is that he would be born in, in Bethlehem. And the proof text is uh, Micah chapter 5. So the Matthew passage goes on. It says, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and his name is, are you with me? Come on. His name is Micah. I heard the people at home more than the people in this room here. His name is Micah. It is written by Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The chief priests and the scribes, they knew exactly where the Messiah would be born. There was no like reading into this. Well, it says Bethlehem, but what Bethlehem really means, none of that. It was, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they knew that and they were able to tell Herod, they were able to tell these wise men, these, uh, these folks that had come and traveled to Jerusalem, go to Bethlehem and you'll see him. Now, isn't it interesting that they tell these wise men, go to Bethlehem and you'll find the Messiah, and yet they don't go with him? Wouldn't you want to go with him? If you truly believed that the Messiah was there, wouldn't you want to go and see the Messiah as well? And yet I think what happens here amongst these experts in the law, they become so good at head knowledge that they lose a heart knowledge of the Lord. And so there's no desire on their part. There's no hunger you don't see for righteousness on the part of these chief priests and the scribes. 
There's no desire to really come into the presence of God's Messiah and to welcome his kingdom. We pray that prayer um, that I think it was Will that prayed earlier or read earlier about your kingdom come in my life. Well, that's the coming of the Messiah. That's what it's talking about, the millennial kingdom come here on this earth. And now somebody comes to them, tells them, I've heard, the Messiah has come, where can I find him? And they're not even interested in going there themselves. And yet they can send other people there. How sad. I think that can happen to us as Christians. The more and more familiar we become with the text, the text can become sort of a trivia book to us. And we can answer all the questions and we can, when, man, when they hit Bible on Jeopardy, look out. I sit up on the edge of my seat and I'm ready to win or whatever. And yet we've lost all of our heart knowledge from the Lord. These guys have done that. But they say, very matter-of-factly, you need to go to Bethlehem because Micah said that's where he would be born. So going back to the Micah passage, take a quick sip here, I'm sorry. Verse 2 again, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Continuing, he says, therefore, verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, the key word that I want you to look at in verse 3 is the word them. And so you see there, it says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor shall give birth. Micah refers once more to an analogy that he introduced in the previous chapter. Now remember, that's the same sermon. We just didn't have time to do it in one sitting. But the analogy that he brought up in the beginning of this sermon was comparing the nation of Israel to a woman that was in labor. And so if you look back at chapter 4, look at verse 10. It says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. Now the labor spoke of the difficulty of the nation's coming captivity. And so Israel is the woman. The labor spoke of the difficulty of the coming captivity. The anticipated joy that at the end of the labor would come a baby that she could hold in her arms, that spoke of the far prophetic restoration of the nation in the, king, the millennial kingdom. And so going back to the Micah passage, I already read to you the beginning of the verse, it continues... There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. All right, so he's introduced this idea of labor, a woman, Israel, labor, captivity, the joy of holding her newborn baby, and the pain of the labor being done, a return to the land. He picks up that now in Micah chapter 5, verse 3, and he says, therefore, he shall give them up, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of her brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Again, this idea of a returning remnant to the land of Israel, coming from the captivity, coming from the diaspora, the disbursement around the world. And in this verse, Micah introduces three stages in the history of Israel. Frankly, if it wasn't explained further and we didn't have the hindsight of being able to look back historically, I'm not sure we would pick it up from this verse. But because it's explained in other places of scripture and because we're able to look back historically at it, we can see three stages in the history of Israel. 
The first is what we would call the church age. It's the time in which we're living right now. The 2,000 years and who knows how much longer of the church age in which God primarily is dealing and ministering to or with and through his church. That's the present stage of history that the nation of Israel is living under. And it's spoken of in this verse here where it says, and he shall give them up. And so because of the rejection of the nation of Israel as a whole, not every single Jew that lived in Israel at the time of Jesus, but because of the rejection of the Messiah by the nation of Israel, of the Lord Jesus, God would give up the nation of Israel, and that would result in the word going forth to the nations or to the Gentiles. Here's how the Apostle Paul described it. This is the book of Romans chapter 11. He said, so I ask, did they stumble, they being Israel, did they stumble in order that they might irreparably fall? I'll add that word there because that's the meaning. By no means, he says. Rather, through their trespass, through their, Israel, their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, obviously, the Lord knows how all of history was going to go down. He knew that his son would be rejected. He knew that his son would go to a cross. It says in another place before the foundation of the earth, the lamb was slain. He knew how everything was going to go down. But from a human perspective, not God's perspective, but from a human perspective, we can say this. Had the Jewish people received Christ at his first coming, then there would have been no need for a church age. We would have immediately entered into what we call the millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ ruled and reigned in righteousness. Had the Jewish people received Christ in his first coming, then his glorious kingdom could have been immediately set up. Now, of course, we know, even as the Lord knew, that the Jewish people as a whole, they did reject the Lord in his first coming. And they even delivered him over to be crucified by the Romans. Micah alludes to that a bit in the first verse of chapter 5 in which he says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so they did, they rejected, they did not accept the coming of the Messiah in his first coming. And so with that in mind now, read again the opening words of verse, uh, verse 3 where it says, therefore he shall give them up. That's why he gave them up, because they rejected his Messiah. What's our rule regarding the word therefore? Whenever you see it, ask yourself what it's there for. All right? It's building an argument based on something that came right before. I tell you all of these things, therefore, this is the conclusion. And so every time you come across the word therefore, ask yourself what it's there for. What did the Lord give Israel up for? He did so because Israel rejected the Lord in his first coming. And because they did, they would be, as it says in the verse, given up for a time while the gospel primarily went forth to the Gentiles. And it will continue to go forth primarily to the Gentiles, again to quote the Apostle Paul, this is Romans eleven twenty five. until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the church age, primarily a work among the nations. Paul will say in that verse, notice they're right in the middle, he says, a partial, a partial hardening has come, upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Important to note, it's not a full hardening. Jewish people in the church age can come to know Christ 
as their Savior. They can come to know him as the Messiah. We have folks in this congregation that are of Jewish descent, raised as Jews that have come to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. If you want to have a little fun and you want to be blessed a bit, there's a website. It's called imetmessiah.com. And it's a group of uh, interviews, some young person, old person, whatever, sitting in a room and being interviewed and explaining how they grew up as a Jew in one form or another, Orthodox reform, whatever might be, conservative, and how they recognized that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Many of them are in Hebrew, so that's not going to do most of us any good. But there are a number of them that are in English. And it's such an incredible blessing to, to hear the story of how God worked in their life despite their culture, which they were raised up in that said, don't ever open up the New Testament, and how when they did, they began to discover who Jesus was. So God can work, and God is working among the Jewish people. There's lots of Jews that are coming to Jesus Christ in these particular days. But in this age, this church age, the overwhelming number of believers for this last 2,000 years or so are folks that are Gentiles in origin. And all that simply means is non-Jews. Non-Jews, most of us. That's the first stage that Micah is talking about. The second stage of Jewish history that Micah mentions in this verse, it's wrapped up in that one word, labor. We've been talking about this woman that's going to go into labor. That it speaks of right there in the middle of the verse. And we, I touched on it today. We talked about it in our last time together. Following the time of the partial hardening of the Jewish people. Again, that's the... let's. Make sure you got it. What do we call that first stage? The church age. Good. Come on, you know the answer. You're just a little nervous. Like, oh, what if I get it wrong? I'll take points off. All right, whatever it might be. And so it's the church age. Following that time of partial hardening is going to come a time of labor, a time of travail, or to use the word, a time of tribulation, small t. Again, what the Bible refers to that as, that time of travail, is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 37 says, Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. This is what we commonly call, with a capital T, the tribulation period. And you can read about the, the trouble, the travail that Israel will undergo in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 18. Jesus said it this way in, in a word, Matthew 24. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. But notice the word there, or the words, the tribulation. That's the second stage of Israel's history that Micah is pointing out here in this verse. And so we have stage one, when Israel is given up for a time. We have stage two of Israel's history, when she undergoes a time of travail. And then we have stage three, where Micah describes uh, Israel as having given birth. So to quote our friend Micah again, chapter five, verse three, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And so for Israel, after the birth pangs, the tribulation, Israel will give birth. And that refers to the gathering together of a remnant of Israel to come back to the land of Israel under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom. And so we have this remnant of Jewish people. And there are, in our day, again, a remnant 
of Jews that recognize the Lord. Go to that website, imetmessiah.com. You'll be blessed. There's one guy, an old guy, long beard. If you can find that old guy, a little chubby guy, uh, big chubby guy, uh, but he's good. He's sweet, and you'll be blessed. He talks for about nine minutes, and he'll speak to your heart, I think. Um, but the majority of Jews, as a nation, will not recognize the Lord until after this time of tribulation. The prophet Zechariah is clear about this. He says this. This is Zechariah chapter 12. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David, that's a Jewish people, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. God is going to pour out on the Jewish people so that what comes out of them is a spirit of grace with pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on me whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will be, weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And again, who's that referring to? It's referring to Jesus Christ. And it's in this day that Micah is speaking of this third stage when the Jewish people as a nation will recognize who Jesus is. They'll recognize we killed the Messiah as a people, as a nation, We've put the Messiah to death, and yet here he has returned, and he's poured out his grace on us, and he's given us a spirit to cry out to him for his mercy, and he has shown his mercy to us. Do you think that would cause you to weep? Do you think that would break your heart to know that God would be willing to give you the forgiveness of sin that you don't deserve? Well, that's what's going to be going down here in this particular day. And Micah's speaking of it in this third verse. Now, let's continue on here. In just a second, I'm sorry, because I talk too much. Well, it goes on in verse 4, and put a context. The prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years have been telling the nation of Israel, stay away from idols. Then that, that message changed to put away your idols. You need to destroy them. You have to stay away from these things. And they wouldn't. And that infected the entire nation, including their leaders. And their leaders became corrupt, politically and religiously. Micah now is going to focus on this idea that there's coming a day when Israel will finally have a leader that will rule over them and reign over them in righteousness for the people's goods and good. And he describes it. Look at verse 4. It says, And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure for now he shall, be, he shall be great until the ends of the earth. Now remember, this is the same sermon as what we did last week. And Mike has been talking all about the corrupt leaders, and now he paints the picture of a good leader. In the last sermon, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he compared the current leaders of Israel at that time at, to ravenous wolves. He says that they tear the skin from off God's people. Do you see that? That's crazy. Who tear skin from off my people. They tear their flesh from off their bones. They eat the flesh uh, of my people and flay their skin from off of them. That's their leaders. Not literally doing those things necessarily, but treating them like a ravenous wolf would treat the sheep. That's the leaders of their day. Now, Mike is going to contrast that with God's Messiah. And as I read in verse 4, he declares that God's Messiah will shepherd in the strength of the Lord. And that they will be under, that under his leadership, that they will forevermore dwell securely, he says. 
At the uh, beginning of verse 5, he says, he speaks that his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He's the good shepherd. He's not a ravenous wolf to the sheep, but he's the good shepherd to the sheep. The prophet Isaiah used similar imagery. And and remember, Isaiah and Micah, they prophesied as contemporaries, essentially. Um, Isaiah was a little bit earlier, but there was an overlap between them. Isaiah said this, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, speaking of the Messiah, he said, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Contrast that with the ravenous wolves of chapter 3. Isn't that a great contrast, like a large contrast? The picture that Isaiah is saying is like a wounded lamb has been out there, and the shepherd goes out and finds that lamb, picks up that lamb, and carries him close to his heart back to the place of safety where he can nurse him back to health again. That is a good shepherd. That's what Micah is enthralled with in this prophecy as he looks past his day to the far future when that day would come, and that's what he begins to long for, the time when the good shepherd will gather his sheep again, assemble the flock, and eventually return them to the capital city of Jerusalem. I can't help but think of the New Testament When I read these words, you remember Jesus said this, speaking to his disciples, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. What an incredible contrast from the wicked, self-serving shepherds of Micah's day and even in our day, And like a breath of fresh air, this description of the Lord's Messiah. How sweet it is. Micah transitions again in verse 5b. And he says, now when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrance. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Now, he's he's been in his day. He transitioned to that day when the Messiah would come and rule and reign over. He now transitions to another day when a different leader will come up on the scene. He calls him here the Assyrian. The Assyrian that he is referring to is another name. It's sort of poetic name for the Antichrist. You've probably heard that term. This pseudo-Christ figure that will rise up in the last days during the tribulation period and rule and reign over the earth. A coming world dictator. Scripture says he will initially appear to be a friend of Israel. In fact, the, the length of time of the tribulation, the Scripture says, is seven years in time. That coincides exactly with the signing of this seven-year peace treaty that the Antichrist makes with the nation of Israel and presumably other nations of the world. But it's definitely involving the nation of Israel. And initially, the Antichrist seems to be a friend of Israel. He's welcomed by Israel. He's received by Israel. He's loved by Israel. But the scripture teaches that in three and a half years, right in the middle of this seven-year period of time, that the Antichrist is going to violate that treaty. And he's going to do so by going into the temple. Now, is there a temple yet in Israel? 
No, which means it has to be rebuilt. It should interest you that there are plans to rebuild a temple in Israel. But how could you be, rebuild a temple in Israel when it has to go in the exact place where it once stood? And where it once stood, the Temple Mount, there's now, that's a holy site for the Muslim people. I would suggest to you that this treaty that's going to come down will not just be a political treaty, but it'll be a religious treaty of some sorts as well, in which the Muslim people will agree in Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount in particular to coexist with the Jewish people so that there will likely be this mosque there as well as this temple there on a separate area. The, the Temple Mount is huge. I think it's 32 football fields uh, in size. It's very, very large. And there is some evidence to show that where the uh, current uh, Dome of the Rock is, that gold uh, dome that is there in Jerusalem, that that's not actually directly on top of where David bought the threshing floor and that they built the Temple of Jerusalem that the Temple of Jerusalem is actually a little bit over to the side of that. So conceivably, and I don't know for sure, because that could come down easily, the, the uh, Dome of the Rock. And that's why security is so strong up there in Israel. People are afraid they're going to blow it up. Um, but I, I would suggest to you, I think, that they're going to build a temple right alongside of it. There's this little gazebo there, and it's called the Place of the Spirits. And it's believed that that's where Abraham and, uh, went and he offered his son Isaac, or planned to offer his son Isaac. And that that's the place where the temple stood. Well, anyway, this Antichrist is going to come along. He's going to have this peace agreement of sorts. Israel's going to love him. Three and a half years into it, Daniel describes this. It's what's called the abomination which causes desolation. That the Antichrist himself is going to go into that newly built temple, set himself up to be worshipped as God. And, of course, only one God could be worshipped by the Jewish people, the God of heaven. And it's gonna, he's going to turn his, uh, his wrath against the Jews. The Jews are going to have to flee. We learned about this in our study, I think it was, of the book of Amos, how they're going to flee to Edom, to the place called Petra. All these things are in the scripture for us. We can see these things. Well, here Micah refers to that world leader that will turn his wrath against the Jewish people. We call him the Antichrist, typically. He calls him here the Assyrian. But notice what Micah does. He quickly points out that this Assyrian will be overthrown. He quickly points out that though this Assyrian has turned his wrath against the Jewish people, how the Lord is going to deliver the Jewish people from that Assyrian. And so the end of verse 6 there, and it says, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Immediate victory for Jesus. We talked about the Battle of Armageddon last week. It's not really much of a battle. The Lord comes back, the, the nations of the world had gathered to this place of battle. You can read about it. The scripture says it, it almost is as if the, the nation, or the world, I should say, has divided into sort of three sides. And those three sides come to the plain of Megiddo, and then Jesus Christ returns. We talked about this with the white horses. Those of us returning with him will come. And the three, the three sides refocus their attention, not on one another, but on him. And like that, the Lord wins. It's not going to be a battle with the creator and sustainer of the universe. And he'll make his way to Jerusalem, establish his kingdom, and he'll rule and he'll reign with righteousness. Micah 5, verse 7 goes on. It says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. Like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, 
which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand will be lifted up over your adversaries, and all of your enemies will be cut off. He goes on in verse 10. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I'll cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. I'll cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. I'll cut off the sorceries from your hand and you will have no more tellers of fortunes. I'll cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you will bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Now in our past studies, both here and some of our previous studies that we've been looking at Wednesday night, we've been spending a lot of time with this as we make our way through the book of Joshua and into Judges and so on. What we saw in some of our previous studies is how repeatedly God had warned the Jewish people not to get involved in the idolatry that was so prevalent in the land before they occupied it and in the area of land that was surrounding them. And God would continually give these repeated warnings it was very specific, and it started with Moses when he was delivering the law. I pointed this out last time we were together. Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is wrapping up his life work. And as he does so, and he's given them the law, he said to them, look, here's how it's going to go down under this, what we'll call the Mosaic Covenant. If you follow these things as the Lord has put them in place, God's going to bless you. And here's how he's going to bless you. And Moses will list 20 ways that God would bless the, the people of Israel if they would obey him and walk in his ways. And then he turns, Deuteronomy 28, it's around verse 15, and he says, but if you will not listen to me, and if you persist in your sin, and you continue to run after these things that I've told you not to run after you, then these curses will come upon you. These negative things will come upon you. Again, for the purpose of bringing them back to himself. He concludes, this is 2815, I, I guess they just put it up there. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you will not be careful to do all of his commandments and statutes that I command you, then all these curses will un, uh, overtake you. Now you can read from Deuteronomy 28, verse 16, to Deuteronomy 28, verse 63. And one of the things you'll notice is the curses that the Lord gives, they, they continue to grow, so to speak, in severity. And so first it's a grounding for a week, and then it's two weeks, and then, you know, it's fine. And it gets more and more and more severe as they continue to disobey. And it culminates in verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28. I'll put it up there. And it says, And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you'll find no respite. And there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life will hang in doubt before you. Night and day you will be in dread and you will have no assurance of your life. Again, for what purpose? Why is God doing this? To bring them to their senses. We go back once more to the story of the prodigal son where this fella is... Uh, brought to the place where he has to experience the consequences of his sin. And what does it do in his life? It brings him to his senses. He realizes, what am I doing out here? I can go back to my father's house and live as a servant there better than I'm living here. And that's exactly what he does. He returns to his father. Why does God finally deliver the two kingdoms of the Jewish people into captivity? 
to bring them to their senses, to put the circumstances so difficult upon them that they will come to their senses and realize, what am I doing here? I can return to my father, which is exactly what they did. And what Micah is doing here in these final verses of chapter 5, he's pointing out the way in which God roots out from them the sin of idolatry. And he did so in a foreign land. He sent them essentially to what was the capital of idolatry, ultimately Babylon, with the southern kingdom. And notice he says in verse 12, he says, I'll cut off the sorceries from their hand, and they'll have no more tellers of fortune. He talks about in verse 13 how he's going to cut off their carved images and their pillars that they bow down to. He says in verse 14 that he's going to root out the Asherah images from among them. The Asherah images, they were carved images to the false goddess Asherah or Ashtart, you may, Ashtart you may have heard of, or Ashtoreth. That was prevalent throughout the land of uh, Israel and, and the neighboring nations. These false deities, these statues that they would set up of this fertility goddess. And he says, you guys are going to come back to the land. He has rooted out your Asherah images from among you, and not just in the land, but in their hearts as well. Despite the repeated commandments to not engage in these things, they did engage in these things. The prophet Solomon, excuse me, uh, Solomon, he wasn't a prophet, I guess, but he wrote in the, in the Proverbs uh, a verse which describes the Jewish people perfectly regarding idolatry. He says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And that's what Israel did. They kept going back to their sin. And so what would the Lord do? Just let them go and say, well, that's, I guess that's who they are. You know, I guess it's, that's just how they were wired and how they were made. And who am I to challenge them about sin? That's not what the Lord does at all. The Lord loves them too much to leave them in their sin. And so what the Lord does is develops a way to root sin out of their lives. And it was the difficulty, the extreme difficulty of the captivities that accomplished that purpose, that rooted out the idolatry from their lives. And so he delivered them over as our friend Micah has been telling us. The Lord's anger, however, would not burn against the people forever. And as we've been seeing, there was a time coming when he would execute his vengeance upon those who inflicted, if you will, the Lord's anger, the ones that said, I'll do it, I'd love to do it, where the Lord turns his vengeance upon them. Micah writes about that in verse 15. It says, in an anger and an anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So Israel has been purified. Those that had exalted themselves against the Lord and his people, they're going to be held accountable for having done so, whether that's the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans or from the 20th century, the Germans or the Antichrist himself. The Lord will uh, deal with those that exalted him, themselves against him and his people. And so again, Micah here in this second sermon, he looks past the near judgment to the far prophecy of the Lord's glorious kingdom. Because in that day, everything that has exalted itself against the Lord will be put down. In that day, every kind of evil will be rooted out. Righteousness will reign until the ends of the earth. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen?
Do you, do you long for that day? I really do. I long for that day, and I know a lot of you do. And so with the saints through the ages, we declare Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And how, what's the response of his saints? Amen, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Our hearts long for heaven. Our lo hearts long for the day in which righteousness will reign on the earth. It says a little bit later in that same passage, the word Maranatha. Maranatha was an explanation. It was very common in the church uh, throughout its history. I don't hear it much anymore. But it means our Lord comes. And so we respond with the saints of old and we say, oh, yes, Lord, come. Come, Maranatha. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, I know even as I speak of these things, uh, to some degree I'm conflicted. Lord, I imagine kind of looking out and seeing people's response or whatever. Some of us are just tired and ready to go. Lord, bring us home tonight, this afternoon. But most of us, many of us, here, life on the earth, we, we love our families. We love the lives that we're building, the jobs that we have, and, or at least we're trying to attain as we study and these things like that. And would the blessing of friends and family and church family that we love and we care for and, and certainly all these things. And Lord, we can settle in here on the earth and in and of itself it's not wickedness where that stems from. And yet, Lord, as we, we come closer and closer to you, and perhaps as we get a, a greater glimpse of this world in which we live in and the corruption and the selfishness and the arrogance and the pride and the sin that just seems to reign over so much of the earth, Lord, you do birth or rebirth within us once more a longing for heaven, a longing for the Lord's kingdom come here on the earth. And so, Lord, give us hearts that do cry out in sincerity, Maranatha. Come, Lord. And until you do, Lord, we invite you to come and reign in our hearts through all of life's circumstances that we face. And, Lord, I believe we'll be better for it. And so do that work. It's a miraculous work. Do that work within us, we pray. Amen. Thank you.